This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Saturn Run, a new novel from number one New York Times bestselling and Pulitzer Prize winning author John Sanford, and internationally known photo artist and science fiction aficionado Katine. Saturn Run is a near-future thriller about astronauts racing to reach a mysterious alien spacecraft as it approaches Saturn. The book has drawn praise from authors such as Stephen King and science fiction legend Larry Niven. Learn more at johnsanford.org slash saturnrun.html. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 171 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Jason Pargin, who writes under the pseudonym David Wong. He's the executive editor of Crack.com and the author of the horror comedy novel John Dies at the End and its sequel, This Book is Full of Spiders, Seriously Dude, Don't Touch It. In 2012, John Dies at the End was adapted into a feature film by Don Coscarelli, director of Bubba Hotep. Pargin's latest book is a science fiction novel called Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits. And today's show is brought to you by the new novel Saturn Run, a unique partnership between number one best-selling thriller writer John Sanford and internationally known photographer and science fiction geek Katine. Sanford is the author of 37 best-selling thriller novels, and this new book will appeal to fans of science fiction thrillers like The Martian. And here's the synopsis. It says, The year is 2066. A Caltech intern inadvertently notices an anomaly from a space telescope. Something is approaching Saturn and decelerating. Space objects don't decelerate. Spaceships do. A flurry of top-level government meetings produces the inescapable conclusion. Whatever built that ship is at least 100 years ahead in hard and soft technology, and whoever can get their hands on it exclusively and bring it back will have an advantage so large no other nation can compete. The race is on, and the remarkable adventure begins, an epic tale of courage, treachery, resourcefulness, and astonishing human and technological discovery, as the members of a hastily thrown-together crew find their strength and wits tested against adversaries both of this earth and beyond. Legendary science fiction author Larry Niven calls the book a meticulous novel, 100% hard science fiction. I was reminded of Footfall, Maya and Jerry Pornell's own work, and Carl Sagan's Contact. Saturn Run has received a starred review from Publishers Weekly, and Nancy Hightower of the Washington Post lists it as one of the best science fiction and fantasy books for September. Jeff Ayers of the Associated Press writes, Saturn Run is like a mixture of Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 A Space Odyssey and Rendezvous with Rama. Readers looking for a great sci-fi story won't be disappointed. So again, the book is called Saturn Run, and it's out now. And you can learn more at johnsanford.org slash saturnrun.html. All right, and so now here's our interview with Jason Pargin. All right, so we're here with Jason Pargin. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first off, just tell us a bit about how you got started as a writer. I got started back in what was still sort of the early days of the internet, I guess. I had started writing for my own website in 1999, which feels like a really long time ago. <laughs> but <laughs> around 2000 or so, I had started posting bits of a story, a horror story online on my blog. Um, and in fact, I, you had an interview with uh, the author of The Martian, Andy Weir, a couple of weeks ago. I think it's very similar to how he got started. 
where I was basically posting it a section at a time for free because I had never been published in any capacity before. I didn't have an agent, anything like that. I was just a hobbyist working at an insurance company, posting my little story for a few hundred readers to read. And I did that every year for about, I'd say about five years, and created this humorous horror novel called John Dies at the End that was posted on the internet that I was giving away. A short time later, around 2006, 2007, I actually sold the film rights to that. At that point, it only existed online, and then I had copies printed up by a, a small print-on-demand publisher. And actually sold the film rights to a famous horror producer-director named Don Coscarelli. Who, right after that, I then got a publishing deal with St. Martin's Press to publish it you know, worldwide in hardcover, and that was sort of the beginning of this whole thing. But I took a very, what at the time was a very untraditional path to becoming a published author, because I had never submitted anything to a publisher, never submitted anything to an agent, never been published in a magazine, never had my fiction published anywhere. It was just, it, it took the circuitous path from free thing on the internet to selling the film rights, and then to having a publishing deal. Right. And so the website that you posted this stuff on originally, was that Pointless Waste of Time? Yeah, that's what I had named my blog back then. And then I, like today, I'm the executive editor of Crack.com. They actually bought that site for me in 2007 when they hired me to kind of bring what I was doing there to Cracked. And was it mostly nonfiction that you were writing uh, to start with? It had no format whatsoever. <laughs> it was it was essays, it was poems, it was completely it was fake reviews of movies I hadn't even seen. It was whatever popped into my head. And this is I keep calling it a blog. This was in an era when that word had not been invented yet. There was just a bunch of websites. Like nobody knew I mean in nineteen ninety eight the my the first thing I did was I started a GeoCities account. And there are some people listening to this that are too young to know what that is, <laughs> shockingly. But, you know, this was 17 years ago, and it was all brand new. There wasn't, like, any kind of a system in place for, well, if you're a blogger, here's how you monetize it or whatever. Like, it was <laughs> all brand new. Nobody knew anything. And were you using the David Wong pseudonym from the very beginning? Yes, and and in fact, that comes from like in those early, early days of me using the internet. Because I probably got my first internet connection in, I mean, it was shortly before that, probably 1997, something like that. So I had like a dial-up AOL account. And when I would post on message boards, like the first thing I realized was that everybody had a fake name. I mean, again, I'm literally learning about the internet <laughs> like, oh, so on the internet, people don't supposed to know their real name. Okay. So spontaneously picked a name. Like other people would have like obviously fake names like Demon Sword one eight seven or something like that. But when you do that, everybody knows that's not your real name, so people immediately start trying to figure out who you really are. So I thought if I pick like a boring real sounding name, then everyone will assume that's my actual name. So I had started using that as a username long before I even considered writing anything, and then over time that became the pseudonym under 
under which I wrote everything. And at that point, it's too late to change it because that's now like a brand. If people are searching for you, you want one name they can find you under. Right, right. And so, so when in the chronology here did you join Crack.com? Was that before or after you started writing John Dies at the End? I had started writing John Dies at the End um, several years before. I had... Because, it, it, like I said, it was written piecemeal over the course of about five years. So that was in, like, the year 2000, I think, was the first year. That fall was the very, very first words I ever posted of it. I then completed what would become the, the first published novel in probably 2005, around then. I joined Cranked in 2007. Um, but it's kind of funny, because right around 2007, early that year, I had kind of been forced to make a decision to give up the writing dream because at that point, I, I mean, I had been writing on the web, you know, giving it away for free, which it turns out you actually can't. Like in 1999, we all thought you could become a millionaire doing that. <laughs> and by 2005, it became, or 2007, it became apparent, I, no, that, 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 that dream is dead. So I wasn't making any, I had a good sized audience, but I wasn't making an income off of it to speak of. The hosting fees and all that, you know, ate up what little I made. And then, you know, I had sold a couple thousand copies of this book I'd written as a print on demand book. But again, it was, you know, making very little per copy. So I wasn't making an income as a writer. And so by 2007, I had been at it for almost a solid decade of writing on the side and getting nowhere with it and had kind of made the decision. Because like I think I had mentioned, I was working in a cubicle for an insurance company, like processing insurance claims and typing them in. It's just a data entry job, effectively. So I had made the decision, I've got to get like a real career. Because by that, you know, that point, I was 32 years old. I wasn't uh, just out of college. So I had sort of decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to college, take some classes in databases or something that seemed would be like an actual lucrative career and give up on this writing thing. I got contacted by this film director, producer, Don Coscarelli, about buying the rights to John Dice the End, and then got contacted by Crack.com about being getting hired full time to help run their site, those two things happened within three weeks of each other. Hmm. Wow! After after a decade of kind of banging my head against the wall and sending out many thousands of articles out onto the internet to the mass indifference of most people, <laughs> suddenly hmm. in this one same month, it, they both came to me and said, "You know, hey, we we need you to to do this full time and make this your life." Wow. So how did Don Coscarelli come across the story? Do you know? He had bought... I'm trying to remember. It's By that point, it was being published by a kind of a boutique horror publisher called Permuted Press. And they specialized in these small, like they did a lot of very fun zombie novels and that sort of thing. And, you know, they had had taken up the, you know, the rights to John Dice Dan, uh, I think a couple of years before that. He had bought another permuted book, and I feel terrible that I can't remember which one it was because it changed my life. But when he was finished reading it, the, like, the Amazon recommendations came up saying, well, if you like this, you may like this. And he just thought the title of John Dice the End was funny. So he buys it and reads it. And again, this is a point, this is a book where only 
a few thousand copies exist in all the world. You know, lots of people had read it on the internet. Um, but you know, the actual paperback, there were not that many people on the planet who had read it. But one of those people happened to be somebody who had the power to make it into a film and he read it and loved it and it fit. You know, he was coming off of his last project was Baba Hotep, which was, you know, fans will know that's Bruce Campbell movie in which he plays an aging Elvis who has to fight a mummy. So the, the tone of John Dice, the end was like perfect for what he did. I mean, it, was, it just fell right in line. And so he had to like track down. Again, I had no agent. I had not, you know, really worked with an editor to speak of. It was, you know, he had to like track down my contact information and eventually he found my email address somewhere. And then that, that first email like immediately got lost in my spam folder. <laughs> oh, pretty, pretty persistent because there was no method to contact me. I was just a guy who wrote a thing in the internet. And then, you know, again, the, the, the book was published in paperback form only because I had a lot of fans over the years complaining that they didn't like reading it on a monitor. Like people would send me pictures where they had like printed it out and put it in a three ring binder. <laughs> and they're like, can you get a printed edition? And so that's like this print on demand publisher came along and they were happy to do that. But it wasn't like it was this huge deal. It was just a huge lucky break. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Permuted Press. It's interesting because my girlfriend works in book marketing and she's done some work for Permuted Press. And I think their big book, it's called, it's by Peter F. Klein or something like that. I wonder. I was wondering if that was the book that um, Don Coscarelli first came across. I don't remember. And I'm afraid of, of saying the wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, he and I spoke extensively about this, but I honestly don't remember which one it was. They had a lot of, I mean, they had a lot of great books under that label. It was, it was a great, what they were doing was great because it was all about doing what they did with me, discovering these unknown writers and getting them out into the world, you know, because it makes a huge difference. Like, you know, I don't want to de-emphasize, you know, when they picked it up, you've got a book that suddenly it can be bought on Amazon, you know, it's got an ISDN number. It's, it's a real book. It's just that it's, I think a lot of people listening don't realize most books in the world only sell a few hundred copies. And you, you're used to like, you know, if you don't know much about the, the industry, you're used to like Stephen King having sold a hundred million copies worldwide. But it's like most books, you know, even a successful author, they've sold 20,000, 25,000 copies. So them getting it out there and having sold a few thousand, I don't want to, you know, downplay that at all because that was, that was amazing. But it's still, you know, there are people who spend 30 straight years trying to sell a story idea to Hollywood. So I'm this guy working at, in this cubicle, you know, and, and I've not, again, I've never even talked to like an editor or anything like that. And suddenly I, I've got an email from guys saying, look, I not only want to buy the rights to this, I want to make it. And, you know, and I, I know I've got an idea of what I, what it would look like and who I want, I want to be in it and all that. Right. So, so then, so when Don Coscarelli contacts you about adapting this into a movie, did that change your life overnight or was it more of a slow process after that? Getting movies made takes a long time. It just does. And so when he spoke to me, you know, it, like, I, like he bought the rights for, from me for what was, you know, an enormous amount of money to me at the time, but not, it's not money you can like retire on. Again, it's, I don't want, 
get too much into detail, but it's a lot of people misunderstand because they think the moment you've sold the film rise to something like, well, why do like, well, gosh, why you still have a job? Why are you, why haven't <laughs> you bought your own island somewhere? And it's not like that. It's, it's crazy money to somebody processing insurance claims for a living, but it's not like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take the next five years off and just <laughs> ride or whatever. <laughs> so, for instance, it let me pay off my car loan. So, it, but it, from that point, it was very, there was so much press after that because Don has a lot of fans. He made the Phantasm movies. He has been a cult figure in horror for a long, long time. So the buzz that he had bought the rights to this book built up so much curiosity about the book, like immediately, you know, the, the publisher, St. Martin's Press, the, this imprint that does my books, Thomas Dunn Books, like they contacted me and then I had to go find an agent and like ask them like, do you know any agents I can use? Because it was <laughs> it was all backward. But they they had seen you know that this is getting made into a movie, and anytime something's getting made into a movie, it's automatic. There's there's going to be a market for it because the movie people watch the movie and then they go buy the book. So it started this domino effect of them coming in, and then we had you know in the time that it took the movie to get made. Um, the book had come out in hardcover and then paperback, and then I had actually signed a much bigger publishing deal for the sequel called This Book is Full of Spiders. That became a New York Times bestseller. And so if that call hadn't come, I don't know that any of this happens. You know, like the opportunity with Crank came along, but in terms of the book stuff, if Don had happened to just not gotten around to reading it, I don't know that it would have ever found a publisher because I think now if I talk to an agent, I talk to publishers, editors, they will all say, oh, yeah, it's great. This is a very, you know, everybody loves this book, whatever. That's easy to say now, but I know that I spent like five straight years giving it away for free and never heard from an editor, never heard <laughs> from an agent, you know, and so, and that's why I never submitted it to anybody. And like when the book came out in print, it didn't become a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, it again, it sold a few thousand copies. That that was phenomenal, but there was still. It wasn't like I was getting mobbed in the streets when I left my house. <laughs> so the deal started a domino effect of things that led me to where I am now. But it didn't happen. It took several years for it to play out. Yeah, and so I saw that Don Coscarelli he described your work as like a mashup of Stephen King and Douglas Adams. Do you agree with that description? I would never say that about myself because <laughs> those are two those are two legends but in terms of what I was going for there's in terms of the styles that I blatantly stole from other <laughs> authors there's no question because with Douglas Adams and I'm sure a lot of your listeners know that name you know it's the combination of science fiction and humor and the way that the humor comes across in the voice of the narrator. You know, in a Douglas Adams novel, there's something, a character walks into their living room, there's something funny about the way they walk through the door. Like every paragraph, every other sentence is a punchline, but it all stick it all together and it still puts together a story and it still builds up to these big moments. Like it's, 
there are lots of writers out there that work in humor. I've not seen the equivalent of Douglas Adams because of his imagination kind of plays out in both ways, both in terms of the science fiction and the story and where he takes it and in terms of his ability to write jokes. It's it's hard to compare. But, you know, growing up, I read mostly horror. I, you know, there's I think there will always be horror elements to the novels I write, no matter what genre I'm writing in. So when I say that what I'm doing is a combination of the two, it's not on purpose. It's just that's the voice of the authors I love the most. And I think you always wind up imitating your heroes to an extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, which uh, Stephen King books would you say have had the most influence on you? Oh, God, I don't know. My favorite is probably Misery, um, which, you know, he had originally written it as under the, his Richard Bachman pseudonym, but the cover on that got blown before it could come out. But it's so simple and so claustrophobic, and there's two characters and the it it demonstrated to me how how simple the elements can be because it's all about mood it's about building up dread it's about and and like the struggles that this the main character is having this author it's simple simple thing that's about trying to get from his room to the kitchen and his wheelchair without leaving any evidence behind it's all these small little moments and everything about building up the this lady, this the monster lady who's keeping him hostage. Like, there's nothing supernatural about her. There's nothing superhuman about her. She is, in many ways, she's just an innocent person. She has a mental illness. She has an obsession. But the combination of events from the author being disabled, having destroyed his legs in the car crash to her attitude toward him, to the exact how isolated the house is, it all just plays out so perfectly. And it's it's a book that I've read probably three times. The only reason I haven't written, read it more is because it's too scary. It's, <laughs> it's scarier than any monster book I've read. And it's almost, I would think with his books, like the more outlandish the threat, like almost the less scary I find them. I I, I don't think anything compares to that one. Yeah, I agree. That's my favorite St Stephen King novel as well. And it's funny, you know, over the summer, my girlfriend and I took a vacation to Maine. And she said, oh, doesn't Stephen King live in Maine? And I said, yeah. And we just type in Stephen King's house into Google and it comes up with his address. So we decided to swing by because it was right on our route. And we thought we would be the only people crazy enough to do this. But when we got there, there was a whole crowd of people there all like standing around taking pictures. And I could totally see where misery comes from. <laughs> If I get that famous, I'm going to have a fake house for fans to come to <laughs> and then a real house that I live in. And I just I just read an article a couple months ago saying that George R. R. Martin I don't know if he lives in Tucson or somewhere in this small little yeah, Santa, Santa Fe. Yeah, and drives like a Subaru something. It, it's, it's like this little, and they, they said they had bought a second modest little house to put his junk in because he had too many figurines and stuff. But otherwise, <laughs> that's apparently fans just show up at his house all the time. <laughs> Want to ask him how the next book ends or whatever. And I, that's great that he can live that way. Uh, you, sh you show up here, there's a good chance you're going to get shot. <laughs> I'm too nervous about, about strangers who, who traveled to come find me in real life. That's frightening to me. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, so tell us about your new book, uh, Futuristic Violence in Fancy Suits. Just what's that about? It is about a near future when technology has basically made superpowers possible. And it's just a disaster. It's exactly as much a disaster as I'm confident it will be in real life when technology makes superpowers possible. So it is about how we as people deal with like new powers that technology gives us. And in fact, like also in this future, they have like this super powered social network that's way more invasive than what we have now. And so it follows this young woman as she kind of moves to this very futuristic city from the countryside. And she kind of finds herself embroiled in this conflict between very powerful people, some of which can do magic using technology. And she gets wrapped up in kind of having to navigate her way through this and you kind of see the nature of how different forms of power play out because some of these people are very wealthy some of them are very violent and then some of them just have this technology and it's kind of seeing how we deal with different forms of power as people right and so you mentioned that the protagonist is this young woman named zoe ash could you just say a bit more about her and how you came up with her she is the character in a story involving like very wealthy power players and superheroes or Tony Stark types. She is the person who fits into that scenario the least. She's this 22-year-old girl who lives in a trailer park in Colorado, and she just gets drawn to the city on an errand because it turns out that her biological father was a very powerful and very corrupt man. And so she doesn't know why, but these people who can sort of do magics just show up in her trailer park one day trying to kill her. And so she has to go to the city to try to figure out what is happening. But she is basically, in terms of how I came up with her, she's someone who you just don't see in that type of story. She's the woman, but she's not a woman who can do Kung Fu at all. She does not have any powers of her own. She is not going to discover that she can do magic. She doesn't have a chip implanted in her body that's going to unlock some powers. She is just someone who has a cat that she cares for a lot. She struggles with her weight. She works at a coffee bar, and so she winds up thrust in the middle of all of this, and these kind of power players are forced to deal with her, and they no one quite knows how. And she kind of finds out that where she came from, her background, the type of person it's made her into, winds up being a power of its own in a way. Right. And so, and so you mentioned there's this kind of supercharged social media apparatus in, in this future called Blink. Uh, say a bit more about that. It's basically what seems like the direction that social media is going. It's just they have the technology where you can stick a camera somewhere on your body. Like Google Glass had a forward-facing camera, but I, you know I don't think people will ever want to wear like those big dorky glasses. But it's the same thing, only you can put it anywhere. And it just broadcasts 
your life all the time. You don't have to stop and take a picture of your food. It's live streaming everything you do. It's live streaming your meal. Somebody, if they want to see what you're eating, they can jump into your stream and they can look at it. So the cloud of all these millions and millions of live streams becomes the blink network. And basically you can sit there and browse it the way you would browse the internet. And, you know, events will start trending and you can just jump in and be there. So if there's some huge, I don't know, if there's like a big hostage situation, you know, in New York at the Freedom Tower, it's like some terrorists have taken hostages. You can, using blink, you could jump into the feed of anybody who's in the vicinity or any of the mounted security cameras in the vicinity, or any of the dashboard cameras on cars that happen to be driving past, and you can watch it as if you were there, just jumping from feed to feed. And so this concept of everybody sort of living in public, everybody always being within range of a camera, you're always on camera, like the moment you leave your house, you're being watched, and if you're in the crowd, you're being watched from a bunch of different directions. And so it is the ultimate social network in the sense that Everybody is streaming everything they say and do all the time, willingly. The, the, the government didn't make them do this. It's not a 1984 situation where people were required to do it. They did it for the same reason they upload everything to Facebook now. They just want an audience, and they want to believe that their lives are interesting. So a person will stick this camera and then be proud of the fact that, hey, there's 5,000 people watching me eat lunch, you know, or watching me have this argument with my girlfriend, you know, I'm interesting, I have, I'm living a reality show all the time. Right. And I mean, I agree with you that reading, I, I just read this and I, I thought, yeah, it's inevitable that this is the way that things are going. Uh, but I felt like you really presented in a very uh, negative way that it's, it seems to have kind of dehumanized all the people who watch these blink feeds. Like, for example, um, people watch gang wars live as if they're sporting events and root for their favorite team and things like that. Yeah, and there's been a few things that have happened after I wrote the book that, for instance, the um, the gunman who killed that reporter and her cameraman, you know, he, he took video of it live and then posted it to YouTube as he was in his car driving from the cops. Like, he... He photographed himself from behind his gun and recorded himself doing the shooting. That was online. The only reason he didn't live stream is he didn't have the technology. You know, so he had to wait for it to upload to YouTube. But within five minutes, yeah, it was right up there. And then this last shooting that happened in Oregon at that community college, it appears, I don't think they know for sure, it appears the government had gone on 4chan the night before and said, hey, tomorrow morning you're going to want to watch the news. There's going to be a shooting if you go into school in Oregon, stay home. And then sure enough, all the comments are encouraging him, mocking him, telling him what to do, telling him how to go about it. Like, no one's trying to intervene or stop him. It's all just the morbid curiosity. And so you can see this play out now, just they don't have the technology to live stream. I think if that guy had had the ability to stick a camera on his hat or on his pin it to his chest and record the shooting, I think he would have done it. Because I think that's ultimately what drives, you know, there's a lot of the narrative now that like, you know what, keep their names out of the news. Don't make them famous. This is what they want. These are people who feel like this is a way they can lash out at the world and finally get the world to pay attention to them. And there's always this willing crowd of people to sort of like prod them on because they want entertainment. They want to make what they're watching on the internet more entertaining that night. 
It's not that most people are like this. Most people are not like this. But the ones who are, are able to have so much more of an effect, and they all gather in the same places. So if you were, as is featured in the book, like a serial killer who likes to live stream his victims, you would very much find an audience of people watching you do it because they wouldn't be able to turn away from it. And the fact that they're encouraging others to do it that just never occurs to us. We just never think in those terms. If it's interesting, we're going to watch it. And I think the lure of someone who's sort of on the fringes of society has felt rejected, you know, the same reason they commit crimes now to try to feel powerful and feel like they matter. The lure of a technology like this that would make them instant celebrities every time, I think would be too great. Right. Right. Well, and sort of the ultimate expression of this in your book is the villain Molech. And he has this really highly elaborated philosophy for to justify what he's doing. And I was just curious if that was inspired by any particular person or movement or anything, or if you just dreamed it up. He is very similar to a lot of people I've talked to online or have seen talking online. But no one I know in real life, although I would hopefully not be friends with a supervillain in real life, <laughs> I would like to think. But he simply has taken this idea of like masculinity and being strong and being independent to like its ugliest conclusion. You know, and I think every teenager or if you go to any message board full of like neo-Nazis or anything like that and hear them lovingly talk about eugenics or lovingly talk about how you know, we've got to get rid of the the weaker people. It's like a new, almost watered-down version of Nazism. It's it's like it, they've modernized it, but it's all about, you know, maximizing the best people and the strongest people and, you know, and alpha males and how you've, you know, you've got to get back to what made people great. And it's all about being strong, about hitting the gym. And it's a lot of good qualities taken to a very ugly, crazy place by someone who's kind of using them to justify what he wants to do anyway, which is to to dominate people. But he has done what I think a lot of smart, terrible people do, which is built up an entire philosophy around his impulses and his selfishness. And so to make it seem noble and seem like he's building some sort of better world by eliminating the world's victims and the weak people and the broken people in a way to try to disguise the fact that he really just wants to abuse weak and broken people. Right. And it's interesting you mentioned this kind of hyper out of control masculinity because I, I saw you post a comment where you say, Two years ago, I sold a novel about a woman named Zoe with blue hair who gets stalked by crazy people via a futuristic social networking platform. I'm pretty sure everyone is going to think it's a freaking Gamergate allegory. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm afraid that years from now, there'll be no way to convince people. But, you know, I, a, the first five chapters of this book were published in the, at the end of the paperback version of This Book is Full of Spiders last year. So fully nine months, or rather the year before last, so full, fully nine months before Gamergate happened, I had already published the first bit of the book, you know, that is already clearly this character, this situation, like it already spells out. So 
I had the idea and started writing it and the plot and all that easily two to three years before Gamergate happened. So <laughs> the parallels are startling, and I don't want any Gamergaters to say, oh, so you're comparing us to a, uh, you know, a supervillain who mutilates people. But, although there are some parallels, but <laughs> everything about the way the strangers on the social network sort of join this witch hunt against her and sort of write their own narrative about her, the way that played out in real life a year later is frightening. And down to the name of the victim being the same and she dyes her hair weird colors. I don't know if, if Zoe Quinn has a cat um, in real life, but yeah, that was strange. Um, but no, to anyone listening, I'm going, I, I have, I have written proof. This was written long beforehand. That's how long it takes novels to get published. This It's a years long process. Yeah. Another thing that really struck me reading this book is it seems like there's just this palpable sympathy for the poor and this palpable disgust with rich assholes. And I was just wondering to what extent that was a conscious choice and to what extent that's just something you feel and you can't help putting it in the novel. That's coming from the protagonist because Zoe Ash is someone who has, she grew up, you know, in a series of public housing projects. She's living in a trailer and she doesn't have her own bed. She's like sleeping on a futon. Like she is the daughter of a very wealthy man who disappeared and never, and her mother never pursued paternity or anything. So she has had to live her life being among the poorest of the poor and knowing she had a father out there who had a lot of money, who could have gotten her an education, could have gotten her on his healthcare plan, could have done a lot of things, but just didn't feel like it. And so when she goes and starts to the city and starts interacting with these very wealthy people, many of whom have gotten their money in just blatantly illegal ways, she is very vocal about how she feels about them, how they use their money, how they came by their money. That's not necessarily how I feel, but it's important to the story. Because as the book goes on, she kind of finds herself in on the other side of that equation. And she gains some measure of power over other people. And so suddenly she realizes oh, there are responsibilities that come with this that I'm not entirely prepared to deal with. And she kind of has to come to terms with the same thing that all of us have to come to terms with just by virtue of being born in America. Because we were born into a country that is very, very wealthy. But you then get to the point in school where you start learning about slavery and learning about the genocide of the Native Americans, like, oh, this wealth I'm enjoying is built on top of a bunch of dead people and a bunch of exploited people and their their labor that was stolen from them, their land that was stolen from them. But yet we're not about to give up the wealth we're enjoying, you know, because we all, this infrastructure, everything about this country, you know, we all, for the most part, love it and enjoy it and would hate it if it went away, but there's no doubt it was built by some very awful people in some cases. And she has to come to terms with the same thing, with who her father was and what he gave to her or didn't. 
And so that bitterness is where she starts from. But over time, she learns you. it's more about what you do with the power you're, you're granted than just the sheer fact that you have it. Right. I mean, speaking of that, there was a line that really struck me that, that Will Blackwater says, where he says, uh, you realize how much of what you used to consider morality was just powerlessness. Yeah. And he's a character who himself was not born into wealth. It's not spelled out, but you, you get the sense that this is new to him. He had went to work for her father in adulthood. So he's kind of seen both sides of it. And he has a very, maybe an even more cynical view of the world than she has. And he's very pragmatic about, like when he sees a bunch of poor people in a ghetto, he doesn't see like noble, struggling people. He sees people that if they were wealthy, they would be just as big of jerks as whoever, name your famous jerk in the world you've seen. They would be Donald Trump. They would, that there's nothing special about Zoe just because she's poor, that she isn't suddenly a hero. And so he's trying to tell her, you know, you're in a position where you have power over people now. You're going to find out a lot about yourself, that it's very easy to sit around and think, well, if I was rich, I would just go around, I would just go to the poorest part of town and buy everyone houses. And it's like, you know what? There's a reason why rich people don't do that once they get to once they get to the top, once they've fought their way there. There's a reason why they no longer feel like going back and doing it, because they have a different view on things and a different view on those people. And a lot of the book is about that, about kind of reconciling how to feel about, you know, where you were born in life. And that it's not that it's not that being rich makes you a bad person, but you almost have to be a certain type of person to get there. Not necessarily a bad person, but a certain type of person with a certain type of values. Right. I saw an interesting uh, quote from you online where you were talking about dystopian fiction and post-apocalyptic fiction, and you were saying that you thought that it really just, it did influence people, perhaps subconsciously, to think that the future is going to be crummy, and that this breeds a certain apathy. Could you talk about that? Yeah, and well, I, I was raised in a very Christian household, and we went to an evangelical church, so they were constantly talking about the apocalypse and like Jesus returning to earth, and we're sure that it would happen within a few years. And then as I kind of got out of that, I found that the pop culture was the exact same thing. All the movies set in the future, 80% of them take place in, in a future that's ruined you know it's terminator it's or right now you know the walking dead it's a future where zombies rule everything and in america i don't know if it's due to our christian roots or something else we had gone from in the 50s and 60s being very optimistic about the future where the future is all spaceships and the jetsons and flying cars to where we were just sure that the future was going to be a massive pile of rubble and I think that it is the reason why today any any issue that has to do with the future, such as education, the environment, any you know alternative energies, anything that's saying let's make the world better 30 to 40 years from now is almost impossible to get people to care about. Because I think we've been programmed as a culture to think there won't be a future. 
And that's a ridiculous thing, thing to think. There has always been a future up till now. You know, it's, it, you know, it hasn't ended. It's not going to. That's not the way history works. You know, civilizations rise and fall, then they're replaced by something else. It's possible 300 years from now there won't be a United States, but there'll just be some other country here called the same thing. It's possible that global warming will cause a lot of cities to flood, and New York may not be there, but there'll be some other city further inland. We're human beings. We adapt. So the idea that history will have an ending is a sort of mental illness. Like That's a completely fake idea that people buy into and are almost angry if you tell them otherwise. You know, if you tell them that the world poverty rate has fallen below 10% for the first time ever, the world is less poor now than it has ever been. Like the state of humanity is better now statistically, in hard numbers, is better now than it has ever been. And people hate that idea. They want the story to end. They, it's so appealing, you know, in like in all zombie fiction and all post-apocalypse fiction, it's just so appealing, this idea of being a survivor in a future where everybody's gone, it's just you and your friends. And it almost seems fun, even in stories where everybody's miserable, like The Walking Dead, we still tune in and it's fun to watch. Like You still want to be like in that world killing zombies every day, even though all they do is talk about how miserable they are. There's something <laughs> so appealing about that, and I do believe it affects the way people think about the world and the way they think about the future, that we're in a state of decline and there's nothing that can be done to stop it. So you might as well drill all the oil you can because we got to have the party before somebody turns out the lights. Hmm. I mean, do you, do you see this book, Futuristic Violence in Fancy Suits, do you see it as dystopian fiction? I mean, how do you think it fits into how people are going to feel about the future? It's, I tried very, very hard to not write it as a dystopia because it takes place in this city. And, and for the book, I invented a fictional city that sort of sprang up out of the desert, like Dubai did in the Middle East. So it's a city they built in Utah that so I wanted a completely blank slate for the story to take place in. And it is simply good and bad. It's There's a lot of people living there, a lot of people working there, a lot of people having a great time, a lot of people living their lives and raising children. It also is something of a lawless place. It has a lot of crime. You know, the technology is simultaneously used for the same as it is now. It's used by sociopaths to help further being horrible. It's used for entertainment. It's used for, you know, make people's lives easier, make their work lives easier. It, that's the way the world is. It, it goes on and you have to adapt. And as the new technology comes along, it's not good or evil in and of itself. It's all about how people choose to use it, you know, and like the splitting of the atom that gave us, you know, a method of almost limitless clean energy, and it also gave us the atomic bomb. It's all, it's all about how you, you focus it, and the future, it's not going to be, you, we're not picking between a future that's Star Trek or Blade Runner. It's a future where we're sort of plodding along, where some groups make out better than others where there's going to be an underclass, especially as technology and automation come along and people that can't necessarily adapt because they don't, you know, they're not trained to do a job that a robot can't do. And we're going to have to deal with that. We're going to, there'll be different challenges 30 years from now, but 
it, you, civilization will still be here. And over time, things have gotten a little better and a little better in increments. You take step back, steps back and then you take steps forward. But over time, we get a little more tolerant, a little bit, you know, better in terms of helping people have access to, you know, food, water, medicine, shelter. And you just try to keep inching upward. And so this is a future in which they're at another one of those tipping points where a new technology has come along that can either go very right or it can go very bad. And they're simply, it's kind of showing them how they, how they deal with it and how they try to deal with their worst impulses and to try to do something better. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned entertainment. And one thing I thought was funny is that in this future, the newest James Bond movie is, is literally titled James Bond infiltrates a space station full of ninjas and has sex with four women. And I was just wondering if that was just kind of a, a throwaway gag or did you have some sort of critique embedded in that title? No, but the, the title of the novel Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits is also, it's a play on that. It's titled the way movies movies are titled in the future, where it's just straightforward, here's what you're going to get. But the trend that I'm making fun of there is, you know, with movies now, there's so many movies, so many TV shows, there's more stuff being produced, exponentially more than at any time in history. So the reason why Hollywood cranks out so many sequels and adaptations is because the audience is so overwhelmed with choices, the only way to get them in the theater is to give them something familiar. Hey, this is Fast and Furious 7. That's all you need to know. I don't have time to do research. I'm the average audience member. I don't have time to learn about this new franchise. So you've got to be straightforward like, hey, this is, this is the latest Brad Pitt movie. This is the latest James Bond movie. So in the future, where there's even more stuff, even more distractions, and even more crowded marketplace, the titling has to be like the way internet articles are titled now. Like just stating straightforward, hey, it's this guy. Here's what happens. <laughs> here's the character. Here's what he does. That's why you want to watch it. Whereas now, like, we'll still, like, I'm remembering that I, I love the, the Tom Cruise movie, Edge of Tomorrow, which everyone seems to agree failed because the title wasn't very descriptive. It sounded like either like a James Bond title or almost like a romantic comedy or something. <laughs> like, it didn't describe where if they had, if they had just titled it, it's Tom Cruise. He travels through time, and he dies over and over again, and he kills a bunch of aliens in a mech suit. Like, if they could somehow fit that into a manageable title, I think it would have been done much better. Because it's very clear. Here's, here's what you're going to get for your ticket. Well, they did kind of try to do that with the whole live, die, repeat thing that now covers the entire box, and the title is barely visible. Yeah, they basically did a title change for the video release, which I've actually never heard of that happening for a major movie that live, die, repeat is a much more descriptive. It's literally saying, here's the central joke of the movie. You know, if they could have fit Tom Cruise's name in there, <laughs> that would have, that would have been like 90% of where, of where I said they're going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I also, there was another one that really struck me. I wanted to ask you about this is another Bill Blackwater line. He had a uh, Will Blackwater line. He had a lot of good lines, but, um, he says, uh, that right there is the difference between the heroes and the nobodies. People like me know that there is no magic. There is only the grind. Work looks like magic to those unwilling to do it. Yeah, and that's kind of, it's a statement of his philosophy. Because again, he's a self-made man. And I think that he is going up against people 
what I'm about to say will make, make more sense to people who have read the novel, but this novel is full of people who all think they're the main character. And they all sort of think they are the chosen one. So I think he is weary of that type of person who thinks that they were meant for something. And he, being a very pragmatic, cynical person, has grown to find, and you learn, and not to spoil too much of the book, but you learn from his backstory and where he came from and what he's been through, why he thinks this, that you're, you weren't meant for anything. That you, you either carve out a, a destiny for yourself or else you will just get tossed in the trash. Like, like this, this system in his mind just grinds up people like Zoe every day. And so he, you know, he is meeting her and is trying to explain to her the situation, but I, he's trying to make it clear that in this world, no one owes you anything, that you, you think you're the main character of the story, but everybody thinks that. And so it's kind of the moment the reader finds out, she's not going to wake up and realize she has some she she's has the force she's not <laughs> she's not going to find out that she was the chosen one and that now she suddenly has this power everyone has to fear all she can do is grind out her existence moment to moment and try to navigate the situation surrounded by people much more powerful than her who have many advantages over her right and i mean i think part of the reason that that line resonated with me is cuz as a writer i just see a lot of people who want to be writers or claim to be writers but they don't really want to work and they don't really want to make any, they don't really want to inconvenience themselves in any particular way to achieve that. And I was reading about how much you work. Uh, it sounds like maybe you can really identify with that sentiment as well. Yeah. And it's the difference because I, in my life, I deal with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of aspiring writers. I get them in, in my fan mail. I deal with them in crack because I'd work with an army of freelancers. So, you can spot pretty fast the difference between somebody who has a chance and somebody who doesn't. The one who doesn't is someone who wants to be a writer. Like, they have this image in their mind of a future in which they are a writer. That's their title. That's their identity. They're living in New York. They've got a very nice apartment. They have meetings with agents, and they have you know, cocktails, they go to parties with other writers, and they picture themselves as writers. Like, I want to be a writer. The ones that have a chance are simply the ones who want to write. They've just got a story they, they want to tell. And so that's why I love stories like, like Andy Weir's story, where he wrote The Martian. It, he, it wasn't like a movie studio came to him and said, hey, we need you to grind out this novel because we want to turn it into a movie. He just started doing it for the love of doing it. He just started putting it up on the internet, charged nothing for it, and did it for years. Did thousands of hours of research, worked 10 times harder than I did. I'll, t I'll say that right now. Just because he, he had a, a story he wanted to tell. He wanted to entertain people. And so that's why when I hear people say, hey, I want to be a writer, but I just, I don't have any ideas. I can't, I can't think of, you know, how did you find what to write about? It's like, you've got the steps backward. I never wanted to be a writer. I just had a bunch of stuff I wanted to say. And I had this funny idea for a story, this scary story. And so I started writing it. Like I, in the early days, I didn't care whether I ever made money off it. I just want people to read it. And I wanted to make them happy. And I, you know, I loved their feedback. And I loved the act of creating. And the stuff sort of just poured out of me. And 
If I had never made money off, I would have been peace with it. The only issue was that I got to where I couldn't pay rent anymore because I was focusing so much energy on this hobby instead of toward a career because I had built nothing in the way of a career. You know, I was just taking office jobs as they came. So it's like, no, I'm in my 30s. I've got to get a real job with a retirement plan just so I'm not, you know, I don't wind up homeless. So it's the difference between people who want, like when you're a little kid, you know, and you say you want to be an astronaut. I don't know if kids still dream of being astronauts, but when I was a kid, that was the big thing. You want to be an astronaut. But we all wanted to be an astronaut. We wanted to arrive to just magically be that thing because everybody, you're in space and it's exciting and everybody thinks you're cool. None of us were dreaming of, okay, I've got to keep myself in prime physical condition. I've got to join the Air Force. I've got to put in X number of years as a test pilot. I've got to take these classes on you know, math and physics and da-da-da-da, like no one was thinking in terms of all the stuff that goes into it. They were purely thinking of, I would like to push a button that makes me an astronaut. In the same way that I personally would love to like push a button that gives me like abs, like a six pack. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not waking up and doing 1500 sit-ups every morning. I'm not doing that. I, I would love to be that fit guy. I would love to look like Matthew McConaughey and walk around like with no shirt on all day. <laughs> but I don't love exercise. I don't love being sweaty. I don't get the the rush out of doing it. So there's that gulf between I would like to be this thing versus I would like to do this thing. And you can't convince somebody who believes in the former. It, it, it sounds like you're just lecturing them or calling them lazy. And that's not the point. It's a mindset that if you don't love doing the work, it's almost pointless to sit around and dream about being at that end point because you're not going to throw yourself into it if you don't love it or if you don't find it satisfying. Right, right. Okay, so we're almost out of time. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you was, I was just curious, out of the fan responses you've gotten or uh, responses to your work, are there any, any that have really stuck out in your minds that kind of stick with you the most? There's been so much of it. Um, I get a huge range of responses, and there's the people who read like my horror novels, the first two of them, and they found them scary or whatever. And then there's some people who are maybe not quite mentally stable who who think that they're real, like think that they're being stalked by the same demons that are or ghosts that are mentioned in the books. But there are. There's a core of people who identify with David, the main character, not regarding anything to do with the plot, but just in terms of his feeling of being an outcast and the way, like, socially not not being able to navigate social situations and the way that, like, his whole sense of humor and he has all of these defense mechanisms, it becomes clear seeing the way he thinks that it's due to having been born into a world that he just doesn't understand. He he went to school and didn't get why the other kids were playing. He doesn't understand you know, the, the jokes they laugh at, the things they do. He just doesn't get it. And I've probably gotten more feedback on that from like passionate readers saying like, thank you for writing about me. I, although I don't know how you, I don't know how you know me, but that's clearly my <laughs> life. Um, and then I have any other single aspect of the book, you know, like, like, like 
there's lots of general feedback about, oh, I was really scary. It made me laugh. You know, I read it at the beach and it, it passed the time. Thank you. But the people who really will send me these 2000 word emails. Usually it's about that. Hmm. All right, cool. So that's great. Uh, and we're pretty much out of time. So I just, uh, what's the next book? You have any other projects you want to mention? Yeah, the next book I'm already under contract for, that will be the third book in the John Dice The End series. I don't have a title for it yet. That should be out um, in uh, probably the fall of 2017, because um, I'm writing it now. It takes me two years to write one. After that, who knows? That'll be a new, that'll be a separate book deal, and we'll we'll see what happens. We'll see if if people like this book enough that they want another one. That's great. It clearly... But not to spoil anything, but it does not end with every single character dying. <laughs> so <laughs> it could, it could, I could write additional. It, it ends in a place in which it is still possible to write additional books in that series. But we'll see how people respond to it. And so far, the early there are four or five reviews as of the recording of this podcast. There are four or five reviews in. Every one of them is positive. There are about thirty reviews up on Amazon. Every single one of them is positive. So, so far, this very small sample size, we're we're looking good. All right, great. So we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Jason Pargin, a.k.a. David Wong, and this new book is called Futuristic Violence and Fancy Suits. So, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Jason Pargin for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Rory Carroll in Ireland and Had23 in the Netherlands. Had23 writes, Best podcast in my list. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is by far the podcast I listen to the most. Not only does it serve my geek needs, but it is also of the highest quality of the podcasts I listen to at the moment, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. You feel in every episode that David Barkertley is oftentimes a big fan himself and prepares well for the interview yet the podcast never feels rigid or too prefixed. David does something you see less and less often in modern interviews, and that is that he gives the interviewee room to actually tell their story. In my one-and-a-half-hour commute to work, Geek's Guide brings me into the right mindset, always wanting to know more and keep exploring. I look for more podcasts like Geek's Guide, but do not find it very often. Keep up the good work. So, big thanks again to Had23 for that great review. And, of course, a special thank you to Lars Helkvist, Tim Mills, and Helmut Schmidt, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. I'd also like to thank a new Patreon patron whose name would be pronounced in English as Maciej Karwacki, but may actually be pronounced more like Maciej Karvatsky. I'm not sure. Hopefully one of those was sort of close. I'd also like to thank listener Sandra Johnson, who just increased her pledge to $3 per episode. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I'd like to thank Andrew Johnson, who just signed up to make monthly contributions to the show. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I'd also like to thank Penguin Random House for sponsoring today's show. Check out the new novel Saturn Run by John Sanford and Katine over at johnsanford.org slash saturnrun.html. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. 
The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.